Hi, Chris Valentin here. Welcome to my podcast, where I hope to inspire you to transform the world within you and transform the world around you. I'm excited to share this message with you today. I pray the Lord ministers to you as you listen. Are you hungry to advance your prophetic calling and step into your unique prophetic destiny? It's time to break the silence, stand boldly in dark places, and resound the truth across the nations. Join us at the School of the Prophets, a transformative four-and-a-half-day intensive training school. You will gain understanding in your prophetic calling, refine your gifting, and grow in confidence to spearhead cultural change. Register for this year's School of the Prophets, August 7th through the 11th, in person or online at Bethel.com forward slash events. God bless. Well, God bless you. Thanks for being here. Let's pray. We need to jump right into the message today. Father, thank you for... Thank you for what you've done in us and through us and in our country. And Lord, we bless the British too. <laughs> bless their country, God. And uh, amen. Okay, Jesus' name. Um, I, there's been an ongoing theme here for many, many years. And I think sometimes we just go through these seasons where we feel like we to re-emphasize things that maybe are so much in our DNA that our people that have been here many times will go, yeah, I know that message by heart. But I, I feel like we're to talk today about the responsibility of royalty, especially as it relates to our city. And I, I wanna, I'm gonna pretend you haven't heard any of this because there's new people with us all the time and there's we've got a great online campus, by the way. Why don't you wave to the online campus? God bless you guys. We're so glad you're with us. Um, about, I think around 24 years ago or so, um, Bill and I went to a prayer meeting in Vacaville at the mission, the church, the mission. And we were uh, there with, I don't know, 100 or 200 leaders. And it was uh, not a, a largely orchestrated one. It was just most of us just praying and people would come to the mic, and, as I remember at least, and, and, and pray. And so there was a lot of kind of freedom in the, in, the, in the meeting as we all walked and prayed and talked and shared. And uh, somebody came up to Bill. I didn't know any of this until after the meeting, but... Uh, a, a prophetic guy came up to Bill and said, Bill, I believe that God is looking for one city. One city that would come under the influence in the kingdom in a way that prosper the entire city. And that when God got that one city, that one city would be a model city and other people would come from other cities, they'd see that city and they would take those principles back to their city and like dominoes, the kingdom would, would, would advance all the earth. And then a little while longer, and I, I know I'm paraphrasing this actually because I don't remember the exact words, but a little while later in the same prayer meeting, a, a prophetess that we know pretty well, she came up to Bill, obviously not hearing that word because it was whispered in his ear, and said, Bill, the Lord is looking for one city. Wow. One city that, that, the, that the influence of the kingdom would be so beneficial to that city, that that city would so prosper that other people would come from other cities and see the prosperity of that city. And one by one, like dominoes, people would fall into the kingdom of God and understand the benefits of a superior kingdom. And Bill said, I believe that city is Reading. And she said, I believe it is too. And so that sort of gave um, purpose, not purpose, it gave a picture of what Bill had actually been teaching for 17 years in Weaverville. Um, we would learn things like in Weaverville, we talked about, Bill taught about the parables and how the kingdom of God is like, the, like 
a little bit of leaven kneaded into the dough of culture and how it makes everything rise. And so we were learning all these principles, especially for people like me who came out of the Jesus movement, thought Jesus is going to return any second. Uh, you know, the whole place is going to go to hell and we're going to get out of here. And so, you know, we basically exited culture and Bill taught us, no, we need to actually enter culture. Like we need to engage culture. We need to bring the love of Jesus, the power of God, the, you know, the compassion of the Lord into our city and make our city better. And that was a big for Kathy and I and for where we came from, that was a huge mind shift. And so, but what happened with that prophecy, at least for me, I think for Bill too, is that it gave us a picture of what God was wanting. And so the next, you know, for, for the next season was, we began to ask the question like, how do you actually benefit a city? Like, how do you actually engage a city in a healthy way? And um, when I... Uh, Received the Lord a few years later. You know the story, most of you. I, I had a nervous breakdown. I've actually had two nervous breakdowns. I'm not planning on having a third one. But I spaced them apart so it would be in my late 90s. So. And when I'm, during that season of, of a high, super high anxiety, three and a half years of really high anxiety, the Lord gave me some verses that I felt like I know they were written for you too, but I felt like they were my verses. And I would use those verses. I didn't know this verse where Paul said to Timothy, take the prophecies previously spoken over you with them, fight the good fight. I didn't know that verse, but I was actually doing that. So the Lord gave me Isaiah 61. And so impactful was Isaiah 61 in my life. The two of my grandkids tattooed it on their body. And it goes like this. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me for the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the afflicted to bind up the broken heart, to speak release to captives, freedom to prisoners, the favorable year of the Lord, the day of vengeance of our God, to grant all those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, a mantle of praise instead of the spirit of heaviness, that, he, that they might be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And those first three verses, I would say those 10, 15 times a week over myself, that I am a captive who the Lord is setting free that I have ashes in my life, but he's going to bring beauty from it. That I'm not going to remain broken because he heals broken minds. He heals broken hearts. He heals broken families. And he can restore my broken life. Gosh, still affects me. But when I came to Bethel, the Lord gave me chapter four. I mean, verse four which I still have not memorized rightly. Every time I quote it, I listen to my preach, and I'm like, that's not what it says. And people just go, oh, he must have a different version. I'm like, no, I actually... And verse four says, then they will rebuild the ancient ruins, they will raise up the former devastations, and they will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. And I, 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 those were not the, I didn't quote those verses for the, all those years that I was in trouble. And I began to ask myself, and I know this sounds super simple now, who are they? Will they, will they, <laughs> they will rebuild the ancient ruins, they will raise up the former devastations, and they will repair ruined cities, desolations of many generations. Who are the they that are rebuilding the ruined cities? Now, I, I can see it's super obvious now. But for me, I was struggling like, Lord, these first three verses are mine so I wasn't thinking of it so much of a theological, 
exhortation, but more of a personal promise. And I felt the Lord say to me, they are you. They are the broken people. They were the people who were mentally ill. They were the people who grew up in terrible families. They were the people who no one else wanted. They were the ashes that I made beautiful. They were the people who mourned and now they're full of joy. And those people need to go back into their cities. And what I did to them personally, they need to help their city. And I, I began to, and that, that happened when I came to Bethel. I began to think, okay, how do we help a broken city? Then we have this prophetic word from these two people and that gave us some picture to it. Like you're starting, you know how it goes. It's like you have this kind of ethereal idea and you're like, like that's beautiful. And you preach it and people go, that's amazing. And no one ever does anything because nobody knows what to do. And so we started asking ourselves the question and it wasn't just me, our whole team and Bill and all of us like asking ourselves the question, what does it look like to restore a ruined city? And boy, we came here, it was pretty bad. And so, you know, Matthew 28 is another verse that all, all, of this, all of these verses begin to really come to light in the last few years, at least for me, in those, in those years, in the 20 years ago, where Jesus said, he, he, he rose from the dead and he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything that I taught you. And I'm like, okay, when Jesus rose from the dead, he said, all authority has been given to me. How many of you know, the devil has power, but he ain't got no authority. As Joel Steen would say, he ain't got no authority. I don't know if he says that actually. <laughs> Just thought I'd connect to someone more popular than me. <laughs> He's got no authority. He has power. You have more power. He has no authority. Jesus said, I took, when, he, when Jesus rose from the dead, now we have the the God of this world has some power, but no authority. And the God of heaven, who has power over all, everything, has commissioned us to make disciples, not just of people, which is very important, but of nations. And, and I realized later on that that's actually the promise to Abraham, that God made to Abraham. When he said, your name is no longer Abram, it should be Abraham. And God put his ham, he put his mantle, his anointing, on Abraham. You shall be a father, not of the multitude. You shall be a father of many nations. Abraham means, Abram means a father of a multitude. Abraham means a father of nations. And then he said, the next verse, which not very many people quote, and Sarai shall no longer be called Sarai. But God adds his ha to her name. And she shall be called Sarai. The unction of God is in her name. And she shall be a mother, not of Israel, of many nations. And Paul quotes in Romans 4, speaking of Abraham and Sarah trying to get pregnant, in hope against hope, Abraham believed. So he became the father of many nations. Next verse says, so shall your descendants be. What? Fathers and mothers of nations. This is our call. So the question is, what does it look like? Like, what does it actually look like? And um, I, I want to take you to, to Mark chapter 10, I'm going to give you quite a few verses today. Verse 41, in hearing this, the 10 became felt indignant. Now, this is James and John's mother asking Jesus if James and John can sit on her left and right hand in the kingdom. And Jesus is getting, frankly, a little fried over the arrogance that continues among his disciples. Every gospel writer, all four gospel writers, write of this problem of them trying to be great. So Jesus, 
little bit, he's a little perturbed and he calls them to himself. And he says, you know that those who recognize or are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. But it's not that way with you. Whoever among you wishes to be great shall be the servant. And whoever wishes to be first shall be the slave. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we have this idea, uh, uh, and there, there's this idea that's perpetuated about Bethel, and we'll talk more about that in a minute, that we were going to invade the seven mountains and rule the world. And the challenge is, is that we use that language. But we mean it among people who understand what we say. We're talking about breaking the powers of darkness that rule nations, the second heaven, coming in and intruding on their territory and destroying the works of the enemy so that people can come into their divine destiny. We're not talking about like, we're gonna come in and, 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 and rule people and we're gonna be in charge here, and in charge of our city, we're gonna be in charge of our nation. And you know, it's like, listen, that's not what we mean. So I think our language maybe, because, by the way, things have changed since we started streaming like 15 years ago. Because you used to be able to talk to an audience that knew what you meant. And now we're talking to an audience that we never intended. So I see my, my messages in the record searchlight sometimes. I'm like, ooh, I said that. I didn't mean it like that. And our people have context for what we're talking about. We are more than conquerors. We're not trying to conquer people. We're trying to conquer the destructive forces of wickedness. So when we say we are more than conquerors, come on, armor up, guys. You know, people who don't know the Lord, they hear that, they're like, armoring up. <laughs> they're getting weapons. <laughs> oh, you think that's funny, but they actually think that. And they quote us. I'm like, I said that. I, I can't even shoot an animal. My wife, she armors up. I... Okay, we're not going to go there. It's too long already. Matthew, so here's a first point. We have to bring hope. Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verse 21, his name, in his name, the nations put their hope. So how many know Jesus is the hope of nations? One of the first, how do we, how do we actually transform a city? Uh, let, let's forget the nation for a minute. How do we actually transform a city? We bring hope to a city. Now here's the challenge. In Matthew chapter six, why don't you turn there, uh, verse one, sorry, lots of verses. I'm not sorry. Your letter's really long. <laughs> Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. For when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let the left hand know what the right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Okay, this is Matthew, Matthew 6 and it basically says, like whatever you do for the Lord it ought to be as much as possible in secret. So your giving should be in secret. You're, you're helping the poor, you should do it in secret. Now, Matthew chapter five says this, verse 14. You are the light of the world. 
A city set on a hill can't be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Next verse. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Okay, I want, I want you to help me. Are you ready? Okay. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they see, everybody say, see, see. your good works, good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Okay, so Matthew 6 says, do your works in a way that they don't see it. Matthew 5 says, do your works in a way that they see it. I'm like, Lord, you said, you said in Matthew 6 that I should do these secretly. And then in chapter 5, you said, I should do. And you said, light. Did you notice that you're the light of the world? It says, a city set on a hill can't be hidden. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works. Did you notice that he related light to works? He said, light is good works. Oh, yeah, you didn't, you're just, help me. Help me, that's better. I, I'm saying, did you notice when you go, well, I'm the light of the world, what does that mean? It means you do good works. How do I do them? In such a way that they see them and glorify your Father who's in heaven. So here's the challenge we have. <laughs> Here we go. The challenge we have at Bethel, and you have in your own life too, but as leaders, you guys are doing good works you don't even know about. Like the left hand actually doesn't even know what the right hand's doing. You don't even know the amazing stuff that is happening to us as a body. Because we try to keep it secret. And the challenge with the secrecy is people are like, well, the secret, it must be a conspiracy there. It's why they're armoring up. <laughs> they're armoring up because they, and, and why are they doing all these things in secret? Well, they didn't understand that we're doing them in secret because we want the Father to actually reward all y'all in secret. But the challenge is, is that people come in and they like, what are you guys doing? And nobody seems to know because we're trying not to tell anybody. And so one day I'm praying, this is a real recent, like a year ago. And I'm like, Lord, how do I do? I, I was reading through Matthew actually. And I see, you know, do your works in such a way. And then the next chapter, you know, don't, don't let anybody know. I'm like, Lord, that's like, how do I do those? And I, I felt my spirit, the Lord said, it's about motive. It's about, are you doing this to be noticed by men? Are you doing this to get credit from men? Are you doing it for the king? So I want to talk a little bit about, okay, so we bring hope, but then we become solutionaries, like, like Daniel and Esther and Joseph and, you know, Nehemiah and all these guys who, and gals who had an impact on culture. Like, how, how do, what do we actually do? I, I love this, Banny, uh, the first year or so when he planted the church in Jesus culture in Sacramento, somebody came up to him and said, hey, what does Jesus culture do for the poor? Do you have a ministry to the poor? And Banning asked him, well, do you minister to the poor? And he said, what do you mean? He said, well, if you minister to the poor, you come to our church and this is what we do for the poor. <laughs> and and I, I want to read this to you. I wrote this a, a little while ago. We have institutionalized the church and the side effect is that we have taken away personal responsibility from the body of Christ. Institutions cannot love people or organizations cannot love people. Corporations cannot love people. Governments cannot love people. They can do good things for people. They can serve people, but only God and people can love people. Love must be personal to be powerful. If you want your organization to experience 
love, they must experience people. What I'm getting at is that we, we are a corporation, Bethel Corporation, 501c3. Bethel Corporation cannot love people. Our corporation cannot love people. Only our people can love people. You know when I check out at, at Home Depot? You ever do self-checkout? You go to check out, you get about five seconds from the screen, it goes, thank you. I'm like, you can't thank me. <laughs> You're a machine. You have no gratitude for me. No, you aren't getting what I'm saying. That machine isn't really thankful. It has no capacity for gratitude. Our 501c3 has no capacity for gratitude. It can, this organization can help the poor, can do all kinds of things, but the only way that people actually change is when they're loved. When governments, part of the problem with our government care for the poor is that it doesn't flow out of love. When organization feeds the poor without loving the poor, they're actually funding systemic poverty. Governments should be generous, but generosity without love won't change people. And what I'm getting at is that the, be the beautiful thing about Bethel is that we have this diverse family who actually does stuff. Like, what does Bethel do? I don't know. What do you do? So people say things like, Bethel starts church uh, businesses in town. The only businesses we have are the ones you know about, like Hebrews, you eat there. Bethel Media, you buy stuff there. Like, that's about it. So Bethel has 130 businesses in town. No, Bethel has people. You're not even getting where I'm going. I'm just saying there's 10,000 people that go here, plus all the people that follow us uh, all over the world. It's like, well, Bethel said this, and Bethel did that, and Bethel stood against this, and Bethel's a pro-vax and anti-vax and, and kind of vaxxed. You know, it's like, no, we have people who have an opinion. <laughs> I noticed it got quiet when I mentioned some opinions. Some were yelling hallelujah, and others were like, that's part of the conspiracy. <laughs> God, okay, just go, move on. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about lessons from the life of Nehemiah, because Nehemiah actually did restore a city. Now, I'll give you the little background. Now, Nehemiah means comforter. His name means comforter, so he's a beautiful picture of how the Holy Spirit works in community to restore a city. And Nehemiah is living in another, uh, in another uh, country. He's a, a, a cupbearer or a consultant, really, to uh, King Xerxes. And he thinks that Jerusalem and, and, and Israel are doing beautiful. Jerusalem is doing beautiful because the temple's been rebuilt. Cyrus released the people, paid for the entire rebuilding of the temple. And he's under the impression that it is glory days. But his brother comes to him his brothers come to him and, and say, hey, it's not going well. The walls are broken down. The gates are burned with fire. And think of like being in a, think about you owning a house in a really tough neighborhood and you got no doors or windows or gates. Like that's the situation. So Nehemiah goes to praying. And the first thing he does is he confesses the sins of his forefathers and confesses his sins. And then he interacts with the king. And, he, and the king says to him, he says to the king, well, let's go to verse seven of chapter two. I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river that they would allow me to pass through until I come to Judah and a letter to Aspen, the keeper of the king's forest, 
that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates. And it goes on like that. He names some other people. And basically he says to the king, king says, how can I help you? He said, if you could give your favor to me in letters that when I pass through the forest, that the forest leader of the forest would give me materials to rebuild the walls. And then when I pass through these other nations, if you could give me letters, I could give to those kings and they could help me on my journey. So the king gives him these letters. And consequently, he builds, he, he, he's able to, um, to uh, obtain all the materials he needs for the rebuilding. I was thinking about this Nehemiah thing last night, actually, and yesterday. I was thinking about the car fire. Do you guys remember the car fire? How many of you lived here during the car fire? Yeah, oh, wow, high percentage of you. And, you know, the car fire, for those of you that weren't here, the car fire was like being in, uh, you know, an apocalypse. It was, it was dark. It was a hundred, it was through the summer, so it was over a hundred degrees. The, the, it, it was, but it was like nighttime. And the ash would fall on all of our houses and in our yards and on our cars. And it, it was hard to breathe. And, and it, it went on for day after day after day. 7% of our city burnt down. And we were in the midst of, of the, the fire still burning. Fire departments everywhere. Bethel Church open, distributing food and, and trying our best to give help to people who are shut in. It's just really, really tough. And when we got together one day and said, what else can we do? You know, when you have a big crisis, you just feel like, I don't know what I could do. But, you know, something happens when you think family, right? Because when you think family, it's like, I can't do a lot, just me. But when we pull our resources, we can be powerful. And we said to each other, like, why don't we call the kings? Why don't we call our kings? Why don't we call our friends who have large ministries? And we put together, I put together, a lot, a lot of us, Bill and I, we put together, several of our other teams too, we put together text messages and we sent them to our kings. You know what the kings are? The king, people who are leading other movements. People who are leading large movements that are friends of ours. And we just said, really simply, it was just short, it said, we're really in trouble. We've never asked for help before, but we feel like God's called us to give $1,000 to everyone who's lost, a, lost their, their home, not not necessarily, they could be renters or owners. They've lost all their stuff, they have to move. And we want to just inspire hope in them. Could you help us? And in, one, in six days, we raised $1.2 million. Uh, I mean, beautiful, right? Joyce Myers Ministry gave 125,000. TBN gave the 100 grand. Gateway Church, 100 grand. And it just went on like that. Our partners gave money and they just, they just, this just flowed in. We have 1.2 million. We're, obviously, $1,000 is not going to change someone's situation. So why are you doing it? Because we wanted to inspire hope. You didn't have to go to Bethel. You didn't have to be a Christian. And by the way, there was enough left over. I think another 200,000 or something, 300. We were able to give another thousand to the people that were in deep need. I'm pointing out, I don't know if you knew that, but you did that. Like this is a part of your family. Are you following me? Nehemiah, it goes on to say that Nehemiah says, so I came to Jerusalem and I was there three days and I rose at night. And he begins to talk about how he rose at night and he began to, to survey the walls of the city with a scribe. 
So they're just going all the way around the city. You can imagine that this is not like a, you know, an hour walk. This is a whole, probably, I don't know, hours, 18, 20 hours. He's riding around the city and he's telling the scribe, make a note, wall on, by the pool gate is torn down. Uh, need, we need gates here. We need material over here. And he's basically making a material list and saying, these are all the things that have happened. Then he comes to the elders. This is so beautiful. And he, and he says this to them. After he, he said, do you see, this is verse 17. He says to the, the elders, he calls them together and he says to the elders, do you see the bad situation we're in? How many of you know, Nehemiah's not in a bad situation. <laughs> he don't even live there. His job is in another country and he's the right hand to a king. But he puts himself in, a, in the situation and he says, you see the bad situation we're in. My point is, is he took ownership for a city he didn't even live in. And then he begins to recount to them the favor he had with the king and how the king wrote all these letters and how he gave him all this material and how he had protection from, the, from the other kings came in and gave him protection and, and helped him with the materials. And it says this, when he got done sharing with them the good hand of his God, they said, let's arise and build. He didn't say, we got to start building, guys. Come on, what's going on here? When he got done telling them the testimony of God on his life, they said, we should arise and build. Now, I want you to understand who just said that. These people, those walls have been torn down for 114 years. They tried to rebuild them for 74 years. And what they couldn't do in 74 years, Nehemiah did in family in 52 days. Are you following me? Where am I going? I don't know. <laughs> Chapter four. Chapter four. It came about that when Sambalat heard that we were building the wall, that he became furious and very angry. And he mocked the Jews. He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria. And they said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish it in the day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burnt ones? Now Tobiah... Now Tobiah the Amorite said, I'm sorry, now Tobiah the Amorite was near him and said, even what they're building, if a fox would jump on it, it would fall down. And what I'm getting at is, before Nehemiah engaged in a beautiful work, he was peaceful. He was peaceful. As soon as he engaged in the call of God on his life, he had an enemy. Some of us are living in too much peace. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Mary, 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 life is but a dream. And some of you are under so much warfare and you think something's wrong. And I like to propose something is right. One of my friends who leads a ministry, you would know him. You know, he's, he, we were in the gym together the other day. He was working out. I understand you with what you were thinking, so I thought I'd just make sure you knew. And he came to me and he said, man, I said, how are you doing, man? He said, oh, man, I had a tough week. I said, what's going on? He said, my piano began to play by itself. It doesn't even have an automatic mode. He said, electricity was going on and off and things were happening. I said, what'd you do? He said, oh, my wife liked the song. <laughs> He's telling me that he was under attack. Kids woke up sick. Same time the piano's playing, all kinds of crazy stuff happened. And I'm like, I go, dude, you must be on to something amazing. He goes, man, I got a meeting next week I'm really concerned about. I got uh, these business guys. Anyway, I see him the next week. How'd it go? He 
He goes, oh man, we had the Holy Spirit broke out. 134 men came. It was amazing. He goes, oh, that's why the piano played. That's why the piano played, because you're doing something great for God. Are you with me? So then Nehemiah goes on. Nehemiah stationed in the lowest places of the spaces on the wall, the exposed places. He stationed people and families with bows, spears, uh, with uh, bows, spears, and swords. And I, I, I want to tell you how Nehemiah rebuilt the city real quickly because I feel like we're mirroring that here. It went from a corporate commissioning, like let's start a corporation to rebuild the walls. And, and Nehemiah goes, that ain't going to work. Let's make it a family affair. And he commissions each family to rebuild the wall closest to their house so they have ownership of it. And he says, this is what we're going to do. Half your family is going to hold spears and bows and swords. Well, the other half works. And then at 12-hour you know, shifts or whatever the shifts were, we're going to switch and the people who are holding the swords are now going to work while the other people protect. And what I'm getting at is it was a family, it was families that rebuilt the walls in 52 days. And I'd like to point out that Bethel is a family. <laughs> okay, I know you like that part, but it's going to get a little worse for a minute. We are a very diverse family. We are not a political movement. We are a kingdom movement that affects all realms of culture and society. Our people come from all walks of life, from nearly every nation of the world. We have people from every political persuasion. We have people, not just Democrats and Republicans, we have people that came from communist countries. We have people that come from parliamentary countries. I'm saying, I'm saying you can't polarize Bethel to, well, Bethel is this movement. It's like, no, no, we're a diverse movement of people who have gathered around the king. We have people from every social class. We got wealthy people and poor people in every ethnic group. We inspire people to think for themselves, to have the mind of Christ, to be led by the Spirit. Therefore, there is a variety of perspectives in our congregation and even on our own leadership teams. This is the beauty of Bethel. This, uh, two years ago, um, when the outbreak between the Russians and the Ukrainians, the war there happened, we had several Ukrainian students in our school ministry and several Russian students in our school ministry. And they both came with flags. You know, pride for their country. And like, they were sitting next to each other. They were, you know, having prayer. prayer. I was in one of the prayer meetings where it was intense. And, and I'm like, wow, is Bethel for... Ukraine, or are they for the Russians? It's like, no, we're for people. We love people. Are you with me? We love people. And, and, and so, you know, part of the challenge is that, for example, you might have noticed that we don't have a policy for our staff on what they post on social media, <laughs> which is beautiful and painful. Because when people don't understand their, our culture and they go, well, John posted, da, 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 you guys must be first, da, da, da. I'm like, no, John is. Yes. Well, how do you let John on staff? Because he has a brain. <laughs> he thinks differently. It's okay. Yes. And we learn that in denominationalism, you have to think the same. I mean, we have unity, but it's called the unity of the spirit. Yes. Oh, here we go. I'm pointing out that you're a part of a family. A really diverse family. 
that loves Jesus and maybe doesn't think the same way on every single issue. It's the beauty of being here. I'll finish with this last point. In Nehemiah chapter six, it says now when, verse one, now when it was reported to Sambel and Tobiah and Gershom the Arab and to the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and that no breach remained in it, although at the time I had not set up the doors or in the gates, then Sambel and Gershom sent a message to me saying, come, let us meet in the valley, in the, I'm sorry, let, come, let us meet at Sherem in the valley of Ono. Now, let me tell you, when the enemy wants to have a meeting with you in a valley called Ono, <laughs> let's chant this together. Don't go to Ono. Yeah, don't go to Ono. Don't go to Ono. And then it's, and verse three says, so I sent messengers saying, I can't come down to you. I'm doing a great work for the Lord. I'm doing a great work. I can't come down to you. Why should the work stop while I leave you? You have to know you're doing a great work. Listen, one of the weapons of warfare against times of assault is to know what you're supposed to be doing. Like the goal of the assault is to distract you from what you're called to. You can spend a lot of time answering people. Like we, I'll tell you, there's another article came out, the newspaper, I mean, the media guy called a bunch of our staff. What are, you know, it, it, they asked questions like this, like, are you still molesting your children? I, I didn't ask that question. I'm pointing out, I'm giving you an example, like there's no right answer to that question. If you say no, they go, oh, well, you think, well, you were. <laughs> they ask questions that are loaded, like they, they already have their opinion and they're trying to validate their opinion. So like, there's no winning. So why don't you engage them? Because it's a waste of time. We engage hungry people who are asking real questions and actually want to grow. We're not going to engage people that are trying to take us off the great work that God's called us to. Verse four, then they sent messages to me four times in the same manner and answered in the same way. Then Sambalat sent his servant to me in the same way a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. Listen to this. It is written, is reported among the nations and Gershom says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore, you're rebuilding the wall and you are going to be their king according to these reports. And you've also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you, a king in Judah. Now it will be reported to the king according to these reports. So come now, let us counsel together. And Nehemiah says, uh, he said, such things as you are saying, they have not been done. You've been inventing them in your own mind. For they are all trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work and it will not be done. Now God, strengthen my hands. I want to point out that an open letter of his day is the media of our day. The media is, the news media is a multi-million dollar entertainment business. One of the main objectives of any business is to make a profit and the media industry advertisement is the main source of revenue. The reach of their venue and the ratings they produce determine the value of their ads. Ratings are determined by how many people view them or read or listen to their news, not accuracy of information. And, and we have been in a 20 years of barrage of open letters. Would you like to speak to this open letter I already have? Uh, no, you can take that letter and I'm not cussing anymore, so I don't even have language for what I want to say. I, I just want to say this. I want to give you a few things that I want to say to you as a family. 
for the record, Bethel doesn't own businesses except for the ones you know about. Hebrews, Bethel Media, uh, Bethel Music. These are our businesses. So, you know, there's the, 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 last, uh, the, the last little open letter said, and there are, Bethel owns 138 businesses in town or some crazy thing like that. No, we don't own businesses. Our people own businesses and we don't tell them to buy them. <laughs> we just tell them, love our city well. And they build businesses, they build hospitals, they build doctor's offices, they build inventions and innovation. These are our people. Because our people are smart people who love the Lord and who want to infuse our city with prosperity. Are you with me? (laughs) Okay. Uh, You know, um, it's interesting because we have people like, well, right now we have three people that go to our church that are on city council, which I think is beautiful and wonderful. I never even met one of them until he became a city council person. But, you know, but the board of supervisors had Mary Ricker, uh, Leonard Monte, and Joe Clemente, and they were all Catholics on the board at the same, at the board of supervisors at the same time. Well, Jake Mangus was also on the, running the Chamber of Commerce, and he's a Catholic. But nobody wrote a letter going, the Catholics are taking over the city. They have dominated the board of supervisors and now they've taken over the chamber of commerce. What's next? I didn't ever hear one letter about the Catholic church dominating writing. But that's the truth. Um, this, this is kind of cool. Have you heard Bethel's cause the housing crisis? So the last three interviews that people have come and talked to me I actually went to lunch with one of the city council people who I don't know because he made a statement that Bethel's causing the housing crisis. And I said, oh, uh, what? I said, has it got better in the last three years? He said, no. I said, well, that's funny because our on-campus student population went from 2,600 to 1,600. And now we have over, we have, we're, we're training over 3,600 students, but 2,000 of them are online. And the problem didn't get better. He said, no. I said, well, do you know that Shasta College has 21 8,121 students, and they only have 126 dorms? Do you know that Simpson has 993 students and only has 430 dorms? Do you know that we rent Simpson dorms so that our students have places to stay if they can't find housing? Well, I didn't know that. No, you didn't. So isn't it funny that Simpson isn't being, I'm sorry, that Shasta College isn't being accused of causing a housing crisis. And they have 8,100 students and, only can, and can only house 126 of them. By the way, I'm so thankful for Shasta College, aren't you? I'm so thankful for Simpson. I, I, I'm pointing out that people, that, that Gershom is sending letters. Like Bethel's terrible. They have created a housing crisis. Did you know that in the last 10 years, that our city's population has went from 90,665 to 94,219? Do you know that our, that our city has gained 3,564 people? And do you know that we've built so many, we've, out, we've given so many building permits that we have 2,190 new houses, meaning that there is 1,212 less people out of homes? I'm saying, do you know in the last 10 years, the housing crisis has actually dramatically improved, but no one talks about it? Okay, good point, Chris. 
These are things we don't talk about because we're doing everything in secret. I'm like, you don't even know these things, but we have letters that go out all the time, documentaries. This is what Bethel's doing. It's like, that's crazy. We don't do that. We don't think like that. Um, here's a few uh, high-level donations. I'll just give you a few of them. Do you know that we had 14,000 volunteer hours in one year? We had so many volunteer hours that our city was able to get a $10 million grant for the parks and rec because, we, because Bethel students and Bethel people had the most volunteer hours in the history of America, what we heard. And by the way, I want to point out that there was other volunteers in there that didn't go to, to Bethel, but all together in our city, we were able to op- obtain a $10 million grant for our parks because of how generous our Reading people were. Is that amazing? Do you know that, I told you this, we raised $1.2 million. Do you know that Joyce Myers Ministry, we call Joyce because she's been a great partner of ours. And when the fires happen, we were doing ash outs. You know what ash out is? It's where you, you, um, you sift through the ashes to find valuables. It's 100, over 100 degrees out. You have to wear a hazmat suit. And our people did that for months, ashed out. Well, people whose houses burned watched and cried and prayed. And at, during the ash outs, we learned something, that all of these people that had burnt down houses, that the insurance company would cover the rebuilding of their house, but often not, reco- not cover their taking out of all the, 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 the dead burnt trees. And it was 10,000 to 20,000, the average house, to remove that. So we called Joyce Myers and said, hey, can you come talk to us? So David Myers came visited with us, and we told him, we shared with the problem. My, our teams took him around, showed him the houses, and he said, what's it going to cost? We said 486000 They provided $486,000. We bought, you see that equipment, all those tractors? That's all Joyce Myers. She bought all of that for us. Not only did she buy it for us, she funded the team, and we just finished 18 months clearing clearing properties the team just finished like three months ago. You did that. You did that. This body did that. When the um, Reading Police Department lost their funding for their four uh, crime prevention officers, they only have four prevention officers because they lost the grant. The grant was up and they couldn't get a, a, a new grant. We got together and we, found, we, we called the police department and found out it was going to be $1.2 million. The Lord told us, fund them for two more years. We got together. We raised $1.2 million. Do you know how much of that Bethel actually gave? $1 million. Wow. We gave a million dollars to fund. I'll give you one last one. A bunch of our people who are in our congregation and out in our city started saying, you know, if we had an L.A. flight we could tap into a whole nother market because we can only go to San Francisco from here. And so the city council sent several people to United Airlines and also the airline manager, and they tried for two years to get a flight to LA. And then one day, Julie Winter called and said, hey, can you help us with this? And Julie and I and a couple of our team, we flew to the United Airlines, in, I think it was in Seattle, if I remember correctly, and we sat down with their leaders and they said, the only way we'll do this is if you, guys, if you guys guarantee no losses for a year. And they said, that'd be a million dollars. We came back, talked to our team. 
and we put up a half a million dollars and raised the other half and we have an LA flight. You guys did that. In that short amount of time, we gave $5.32 million just to those projects. Not to mention giving $3.7 million to missions. And all, this is all stuff you may not know about that is done every day here. That we're over here trying to keep it secret. And we're like, okay, you guys need to know what you're doing. Because you have friends that think that you are doing something quite different. That you are building some kind of kingdom so you can take over a city or school ministries building, has all this extra funds. It's like every extra fund we have, it goes back into the mission. It goes, pours back into our city. And right now, we are vigilant about having one beautiful city. I, I need to be finished. I want to say, I have to say this. I was, I got up early this morning, I was praying, and the Lord said to me, I'm going to bring you reinforcements. He'd said this, there are people visiting today and watching online that are hearing a clear call to come and help finish this beautiful city. He told me that Reading is to, be, is, called, is to be called the healthiest city on earth. He said he's calling doctors, nurses, and medical professionals to join in building a beautiful city. He said this to me too. He said, Reading is to be called a prosperous city. And he said that he is wooing business people, entrepreneurs, inventors, and innovators and I saw a patent office open in our city because there's so many inventions and innovations. And one more, uh, I'll finish with this. He said that Park Marita and the River's Edge, which we've been working on for years, will be a showcase of family fun and prosperity. It will attract millions of visitors and billions of dollars in tourism. Stand up, I'm going to pray for you. Some of you came to Bethel today, you've never been here before. And I just want to inspire you. That might be you. You, you might be like, well, what are we doing here? We're here to visit. And the Lord's like, no, no, you're here to spy out your promised land. So I just want to say, let's pray about it, okay? Okay, how do you feel now? Should join us. Um, there's people in this room, you may not know the Lord. If that's you, would you just raise your hand? I'd love to just pray for you right now for you to find Christ. Or maybe you've walked away from the Lord. Okay, I don't see anybody's hand up, but if you'd like to come right over there, if you'd like to hear more about that, knowing the Lord coming in his kingdom, we just want to pray for you and give you a Bible and get you started. So Lord, we bless this day. We pray, we thank you that this is the day you made, that you've given us this city, that this would be a beloved city, that every person in this city would prosper whether they know you or not. And we bless this city as a city of light on a hill. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. To stay connected, you can sign up for my weekly newsletter at chrisvalentin.com forward slash subscribe. God bless you.